0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the second episode of uh, Good Code Podcast. Uh, I'm Sanket, uh, founder of DeepSource. Today, uh, on the episode, I have Javed Khan with me. Uh, Javed works with Handshake. At Handshake, they're trying to replace the root zone files by making them more decentralized. Uh, root zones are currently controlled by ICANN. These guys are trying to help users uh, take collective ownership of them, and they're using blockchain for this. Um, Hey Javed, welcome to the podcast.
1: Hey Sanket, uh, nice to meet you and uh, it's a pleasure to be available on the podcast today.
0: Great. So why don't we start with a brief introduction about yourself. Uh, It would be great if you can tell me where you come from and how did you come into being a developer. Uh, What's your story?
1: Sure. Uh, I'm a programmer from uh, Hyderabad. Uh, I'm working for a company called Handshake. Um, uh, I've been in the software business for around 10 years now, um, and I'm still learning and I, I hope I'll always keep learning as, as long as I've been, uh, being, co- co- as long as I keep coding. So yeah, that's, that's, a, yeah, that's about me.
0: And, uh, and what about your background? Uh, uh, if you can tell me more about, you know, how did you start coding?
1: Sure. Uh, so, um, i think it's uh, it's kind of uh uh an uh, unexpected story but uh i've i've, uh, I've i didn't study uh, computer science in graduate school um i was a pharma student um uh so uh, you could consider me a self-taught programmer uh, i've always loved programming ever since uh, uh i like started interacting with computers um uh, and i found found it like um, a challenging task and um, the ability to interact and get stuff uh done uh on a global scale and especially with open source uh, i found that really interesting
0: great awesome so how did it how did it how did you come to become a programmer as in what piqued your interest so you said you wanted to uh you wanted you you like the ability to get stuff done uh so when did you when did you start becoming a programmer then as in, you said you were a farmer student. So when did you start writing the first
1: code? Yeah, so I uh, don't, in the second or third year, um, I wanted to uh, do stuff uh, and get mm-hmm. recognition. Um, mm-hmm. uh, so I always keep hearing about um, like great open source software like uh, Linux, uh, OpenBSD. Um, mm-hmm. And I thought to myself that uh, it would be really cool to be uh, a contributor uh, to one of these products and get recognized. So so I started exploring open source projects. Um, early on, I started using Linux by, uh, like, trying to get Ubuntu on my computer. Um, that was a great learning experience. Um, Ubuntu was a really uh, friendly community back uh, then, which, which kind of uh, gave me an opportunity to uh, get started and contribute. Okay. Um, uh, I started uh, picking around with random open source projects, um, there were a lot of uh, like P2P um, uh, applications back then, uh, mm-hmm. like uh, Linux DC++ was a major one that we right. were using. Um, so I, I found it really fascinating that you could use the same protocol to communicate between multiple operating systems. Um, uh, so you could have, for example, Pidgin working uh, to to Uh, send messages and receive messages on uh, XMPP uh, over to people using Google Chat on Windows. Uh, Similarly, you could like download um, uh, like uh, uh, data or uh, movies or software over like the DC++ network, which was a P2P file sharing network. Um, And there is a small program that uh, we used to use a lot called IP Messenger uh so uh, i found all this really interesting i wanted to get into uh the details of how this actually work and teach myself so which how. was
0: your uh, so which was your first project that you kind of contributed to open source?
1: oh yeah yeah i remember that very well uh it was linux dc++ so uh mm-hmm. that was like uh, a, a dc++ front end for linux um mm-hmm. i think it's still active today you will find it on launchpad uh right uh the 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 core application was that it would communicate to uh, like DC++ clients on Windows and Mac, and Mm -hmm. uh, be interoperable and be able to like upload and download files. Um, So my contribution for that was uh, really small, but it was still something I cherish to this day. So uh, I add whenever you have like a file downloaded, uh, Mm -hmm. I use like uh, libnotify. Uh, This is a library which does uh, notifications on Linux. Uh, mm-hmm. I use that library to enable notifications on file upload and download. Okay, and <laughs> yeah. which
0: programming language did you use?
1: Uh, this is C++. Okay, C++. And then
0: eventually, uh, so uh, I know that you know you moved on and you got your first job when you're writing Python. Yes. Right? yes. So uh, how big was the team? How big was the first team that you started working professionally with?
1: Uh, so I got a start with uh, Agilic. Uh, this mm-hmm. was a small consultancy based out of Hyderabad. Right. Um, so uh, back then, I was like really concerned about whether I will be able to even find a job, because mm-hmm. even though I had contributed to open source, uh, that doesn't really translate into the job field. At least back then, it didn't. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I came to know about this company through Reddit, um, mm-hmm. and uh, I contacted them like just out of uh, curiosity to see what they were doing. Uh, I found out that they were doing web application development using Django. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was really curious about Python back then because it was picking up a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wanted to uh, uh, work with them and uh, uh, to to work on open source as well as uh, on, on Python and uh, Django. So I got in touch with them and they were looking for people. So luckily I got my break there.
0: And how big was the team when you joined?
1: Oh, it was... Uh, it was like four people of okay, it So
0: fairly small team.
1: Oh yeah. It was really small and uh, two of them were co-founders. So it was right. just me and some other guy uh, who were the employees. Okay.
0: Okay. So fairly small team and everyone writing code. So, um, so let's talk about, uh, let's talk about some of the workflows uh, right from there, because uh, one of the things that I'm interested in is, is trying to you know, kind of contrast between software development workflows at very small teams, like very early teams, and, and kind of you know uh, understand uh, understand the 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 growth or you know the changes the metamorphosis of these workflows over time. So uh, if you can recall what what were the in the first you know professional setup that you started working in, what were the code review workflows or what were the tools uh, productivity developer productivity tools that you
1: were using? Sure. So um, so I think uh, I was lucky in a way because. Um, uh, I found a really uh, great team who were already using a lot of really nice, cool features and uh, tools. Mm-hmm. Uh, they really understand what uh, a good software is about. So right. uh, uh, even though a lot of products back then were in like even uh, Mercurial or uh, like uh, one of those Microsoft products, right. um, uh, they were using Git uh, back in the day itself. And um that uh they were using a lot of uh, nice productivity tools like uh, like good code editors like vim um, mm-hmm. uh they they had a fair understanding of how uh, a software process should look like right um so uh, uh we we were using uh, uh like git uh, github uh, uh i think uh, there was a project management app which i don't remember but we were using that for like keeping task Keeping right. track of tasks. Yeah.
0: And how was the how was the code work code review workflow? How how did the code review workflow happen?
1: Yeah. Uh, so uh, I think that's one benefit in like really small teams is you have the person sitting next to you. So <laughs> right. uh, if you have like if you, the, the the iteration cycle for code review is like really small, because uh, and that's great for like people who are just learning. Because mm-hmm. they don't have to um, keep waiting on uh, like reviews or uh, queries for long um, mm-hmm. they can get them interactively and get done with it um, right. uh, uh, so uh, yeah having uh, a people together in a small environment uh, that could be useful if you're like really starting up nobody's sure right. what they're doing so
0: in the first in the first job that you had small team and code reviews were very very you know, very short, the, the yeah. time of code reviews were short. And so you think that helped you kind of, you know, when you are beginning uh, that kind of helped you in becoming a better programmer, would you say that?
1: Yeah, for sure. I think uh, that was a very um, like important uh, factor for, for sure, because um, the thing is when you're starting and you don't have as much experience, uh, you don't know what you're doing and you want to be able to uh, quickly iterate on your ideas. Right. Uh, Get feedback and get. uh, If you're getting, if you're doing a good job, get uh, like recognition really fast. So that that helps you kind of uh, build up a tight loop of uh, communicating and getting things done. I think.
0: Okay. Okay. That makes sense. And as part of the code review workflow, I'd assume. uh, So as you said, the code reviewer would be sitting next to you, so it was very easy to get feedback right away. Yeah. Uh, But as part of the workflow, do you remember using? some static analysis tool or some security analysis tool or something like that back in the day? Uh,
1: Well, uh, we were a fairly small team uh, and we had projects of like varying importance. So Mm -hmm. um, uh, some of the projects were like um, kind of a legacy project which requires only maintenance. Um, Okay. uh, So uh, we were using static analysis on a couple of projects, but not all of them. Um, Okay. Okay. Okay.
0: Perfect. And uh, this was primarily uh, the code was being written in Python. Right. That's
1: right. That's right.
0: Okay. Okay. That's great. And uh, after that, after that, so you started working with Go uh, primarily, if I'm not wrong. Right.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, I, I worked at EdgeLick for four years. Uh, mm-hmm. So I'd attribute a lot of uh, growth to my period during that when I. Um, Kind of got deeply involved with Python and Django, um, right. like web application development, server management, and stuff.
0: Okay. And what were the next next steps in your in your in your journey?
1: Yeah. So the next project that I stumbled upon was um, uh, it was called BTCD. Uh, it was done okay. by a small uh, team of people from Michigan. Um, they're called Company Zero. They're uh, they're working on a product called Decred now, which is a uh, like Cryptocurrency focusing on governance um, But uh, they were doing btcd as a project to understand Bitcoin better and They were doing it in go. So uh, these are the two points that I found really um, Applicable to me as well because I was also trying to get into the technical details of Bitcoin and I was learning go at the time so I found like this project is um, uh, a Really well-suited uh, project for me to work on, okay. so uh, I got in touch with them, I think over email. So I just saw one of their blog posts and sh- uh, like got in touch with them, uh, showed them an email, asked sure. them if they wanted to uh, uh, like they're looking for people. Uh, sure. Yeah. So.
0: And uh, what about uh, so since you you started writing code in Go. Uh, what were your initial... So coming coming from Python, coming from a Python background, so you said you worked with Python for four years. So what were your initial reactions as in looking at the Go ecosystem and looking at the Go tooling specifically?
1: Yeah. Uh, it was like a... Initially, it was kind of a shock because <laughs> <laughs> in Python, you deal with a lot of uh, type errors and attribute errors. Um, so when I realized that all those don't really have to be errors. I was like, Mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of in amazement for a long time. Uh, uh, So that really made me understand the importance of static typing uh, as well as good tooling uh, because Go was built on uh, great tools and it's still continuing to this day. So uh, I think uh, static typing and uh, tooling around your uh, coding environment, yeah, I really uh, realized the importance of those when right. I was starting on Go, yeah.
0: Right, and uh, I think even from my experience, so uh, we use Python and Go both uh, at, at Source. Um, Sweet. And uh, so what what I have found in my experience is, and I've been a long time Python programmer, right, uh, but in the Go community, uh, uh, the go, the go community has built or the, the, the core language team uh, or the core language community. Right. They have built tools like, you know, go FMT and go vet and a few yes. other tools. Right. Uh, which kind of, uh, in my experience, what I've seen is it kind of takes away a lot of, you know, uh, debate so as to speak. Uh, so, you know, there is go FMT and everyone uses Gofmt and there's no debate on, you know, styling conventions. So, I think that was something that was missing in the Python community for a very long time. These days there are projects like Black uh which have some opinions but then you know it's it's kind of the same thing as you know having go fmt for go and python for black uh, sorry and, and black for python. Uh, but I think that is one of the things and you know a lot of people who come from a Python background and then start working with go they they feel right. Um so so yeah so in terms of tooling as well uh, uh, but this is this is one of the things that i feel about static analysis tooling uh, in python so i feel the python ecosystem is richer in terms of static analysis tools so there are some really good projects uh, like you know pylint and flake8 and bandit and a few others and i think that is something i feel its python ecosystem is more mature on for go there're not a lot of you know really mature static analysis uh, projects if I'm not wrong, what has been your experience in that?
1: No, mm-hmm. no, absolutely. I think um, uh, the the Go community has always um, uh, built around uh, like Gofmt and Govet. Like uh, they were not tack on projects like it was for Python. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess you could say that uh, Python is a much older project, and uh, the research on uh, like tooling has been steadily improving over the years. So Go had a really uh, huge advantage over Python in that uh, a lot of research was already available to it. So, right. um, uh, and like you mentioned, uh, the Go community doesn't really debate about the tools. Uh, well, you could say that they are debated when doing uh, the projects like GoFund and GoVet. Um, mm-hmm. But uh, as an individual programmer, you're, like you are set on using those tools for better or worse, right? Um, and I think uh, uh the, the the lack of ambiguity and the clear guidelines around how people need to interact with each other around uh, like uh, conventions that takes mm. a lot of um, willpower that gets drained out when you are like deciding on what to use. I think.
0: Yeah, I think that's very important because in, in a lot of in a lot of contexts. Uh, if you had not, if a team, you know, if a fairly fairly large team, let's say 10, 15 people, you know, even if 10, 15 people, uh, if, if if this team had not been using any tools, then I think it's a very big, you know, in, 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 in when when there is a lack of an absolute guideline, you know, for example, as you said, Go has something which is like okay, community uh, devised guidelines. If there is not something like that, then it becomes, you know, a, a debate. And someone has to say that hey, this is right and this is wrong, or we should do this or we should do that. So I think that kind of makes sense in terms of you know, uh, in terms of Go, but but I think Python as well is moving in that direction. Uh, over the past like couple of years, at least the Black project has been picking up a lot, uh, if you have noticed. So, but I think but I think yeah, but I think this, it's something that is very important to have you know some sort of you know consensus uh, overall consensus so yeah and uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about uh, processes in terms of you know software development uh, what has been your experience so you have had experiences in working with small teams uh, uh, working working on open source projects and then large open source projects and fair fair bit of individually as well so how would you how would you contrast your ex- different experiences in these different different scenarios what are the key learnings that you have
1: gotten so uh, i think one of the most important learnings um i found is that software is a a, a people driven uh, process mm-hmm. um, no software is like built in isolation and used in isolation um it's 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 a collective responsibility of uh, you your team your users and your uh, maybe bosses so uh you need to be uh, aware of all these things when you're like doing a project so you can't just say uh hey, i'm going to use this weird obscure programming language uh just because it has xxx uh and uh these features uh like even if they are available in some other language you just decide to like stick to that it doesn't make a lot of sense because you need to consider people who are going to work on that product later, uh, how it's going to affect your business, um, how difficult is it going to be to keep it uh, running, uh, mm-hmm. to maintain the code base, um, which is actually uh, like the exact opposite of uh, the, the mentality of uh, junior is which uh, they, they want to like stand out and show off their obscurity so they be doing some, uh, like, I don't know, like compiler and brain fuck or something. And that's like the exact opposite of what you want in your business as a process. Right.
0: So, so, yeah, I think, I think that's very important. And, you know, a lot of, uh, uh, and, and I think it's, it's more prevalent in some communities or some language communities as, you know, as compared to the others. Uh, you know the affinity towards affinity to go uh, to go towards shinier things um, so I think I see that I see that mostly you know like for example the JavaScript community right uh, i 've talked to so many developers um, and you know and even when they are hiring while hiring you uh, i 've seen a lot of developers you know kind of getting very stuck into newer technologies uh, rather than you know uh, you know, willing, having the willingness to work on even older technologies that make sense in terms of business. Um, uh, but I think, yeah, as you said, software is not built in isolation. And I think uh, long, longevity, longevity of code and the software has to be one of the has to be taken, taken as one of the primary, primary decision making parameters.
1: Right. Um, Yeah, for sure. Uh, Well, it doesn't matter if you're like doing some experimental project to show off your peers and impress them. Right. That's fine. But uh, if you're building some, if you're going to build something that's going to last, I think uh, you should probably uh, focus more on your options there.
0: Right. Or you hope, you hope it lasts.
1: Yeah. We all hope hope so. so. Yeah. (laughs) No, so uh,
0: there's this very interesting concept. Uh, I picked it up from... uh, One of my favorite authors, uh, uh, Nassim Nicholas Taleb, uh, he talks about uh, the Lindy effect and uh, the core of that, uh, the core of the concept is, you know, things that have been there uh, for a long time will be, they'll be expected to be there, to be around for equally longer time in the future, Uh, which, which, you know, which can be, which can be used to explain a lot of things. Like say, if some programming language has been around for 30 years, you can expect it to be around for at least 30 years so that programming language has actually stood the test of time because it has survived for 30 years and since it has stood the test of time and survived 30 years you can ex- you know in, in a most general case you can expect it to at least survive for the next 30 years uh, so which is i think which is a very interesting thing that you know sometimes uh, when taking decisions on what framework or what programming language to use, or what database to use, or you know what caching system to use, you know we kind of uh, not really, uh, you know a lot of times we don't really think. We think that hey, this new shiny thing, let's just take let's just take this up, and you know, and let's not let's not take something which is like boring. Yeah. Uh, but but you know, more time, a lot of times that kind of turns out to be not a very wise decision um because you know you, you think about you think about very very large open source projects which have been there for a very long time like the linux kernel for example right uh, so you know and and a lot of other projects right so i think i think that is something that you know that that is very important in engineering decision making to be honest
1: yeah oh, well i think i would take your uh uh like example about lindy effect even further uh, i would say that if something lasts for a long time um you can't even kill it even if you if everybody wants it like the example with python 2 like mm-hmm. python 2 has been there for a long time and everybody wanted to move to python 3 but even now you see a lot of debate about sticking with python 2 right
0: and it has been i think it's taken forever uh for people to kind of move to python 3 and uh as in, and now since the, you know, since the uh the end of life is is imminent, as in, you know, I think January 1st, 2020 is the end of life for Python 2, right? And uh, which is like a very short time. And, you know, a lot of people and now it's like official. uh, a lot of people are pushing towards like Guido, I think uh, he wrote a post that, okay, this is it. This is the time. But I think a lot of people have still not moving over to Python 3. Even if the, even if the most, uh, so there's this website that tracks Python three readiness of the community, and the most popular three sixty projects on uh, PyPy, uh, the Python Package Index, they have been ported to Python three. So you know the the overall narrative is you know it is it is the you know there's no reason for you to not move to Python three. Uh, but still, you know as you said, a lot of people have you know are are no, are in no position to move to Python three today.
1: Uh, I think. Uh... One of the most fundamental rules of software <laughs> is uh, if it's not broke, then don't fix it. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, probably a lot of people who already have a lot of important projects in Python are thinking the same, and they don't really want to experiment or uh, even give something new a chance because it's it's it works. They they don't want to. Uh, right,
0: but but you know while uh, while why I completely you know understand that side of the argument, but then from from the perspective of the language makers, you know, people who work on the language, it's not fair for them, it's not fair for for, for the users to kind of expect uh, the language creators or the language maintainers to keep supporting an older version, you know, forever.
1: Yeah, so I think um, one of the solutions to that is to have... um... Uh, to have like automated uh, like porting over, of code right. so that you can like uh just run it through some maybe some interpreter or compiler and get it up to date. I guess
0: I think yeah, Python do uh, Python does have some of these uh, some of these tools. So and it's it, it has been there. They have been there for a very long time. So uh, uh there is this tool called Python two to three uh two to three, right? You basically run two to three over your Python 2 code base and it can throw up a bunch of warnings and throw up a bunch of errors of where you need to fix those things, you know, to, to make it Python 3 compatible. Um, but but you know, I think I think the tooling is there. Uh, it's it's in place. There has been a long time since people have been asking uh you know users to move to Python 3. Uh, but I think if it is it has not happened, it's only a function of uh you know people not thinking that you know they should be doing it like at all like i I don't think it's a problem of tooling to be honest i think the tooling is there
1: yeah uh, i was just thinking like if 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 in the future we want to prevent such a scenario we could probably improve the tooling and make this like roll this out um so that it goes through every single code that is there but yeah, I guess it's different because a lot of code is distributed across a lot of right. places. So
0: yeah, and uh, backward compatibility is a difficult problem to solve. And then you know, it's I think I think it's one of the hardest problems uh, that you know library creators or language creators they have to face because you know, and you know, from the JavaScript community, I have had personal experience. So uh, you know, long back, like three four three four years back, I had started working with. AngularJS, and uh, I was working with Angular 1.5 or 1.6, so 1.x x version, 1.x series, right? And that was the first stable version of Angular. And then Angular 2 came, and then Angular 4 came, and these things were like completely, completely not you know, backward compatible, like completely incompatible with each other. And so when I started my new project, uh, then I didn't even bother learning Angular, I just moved to something like Vue. Which is like way simpler than than Angular or React JS, right? Uh, but yeah, backward compatibility, I you know it's it is a difficult problem, and especially for open source maintainers, uh, yeah, yeah. And uh, but I think uh, what do you think about the Go community's approach towards this? I think one of the, and I'm not completely sure about it, but I think one of the core things that the Go community, the Go language uh, teams, they are trying to do is keep uh, you know the language completely backwards compatible. If I'm not, if I'm not wrong.
1: Well, yeah. Uh, well, at least they've been trying really hard so far, so you don't really have any code breakage. Right. Um, and I think uh, that was one of the goals of. Uh, I think it was Google who wanted that because they didn't really want to have like rolling uh, releases which break things. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, and they also have a really strict rule about doing one thing in one way only right so uh, the the argument about uh, a different uh, set of uh, a new set of features or different rules which just break things but uh, are like uh, are in the new version that doesn't make a lot of sense for go I think hmm. right
0: and that's I think that's a very good thing. Um, and you know maybe so I have not written any language so and, and I, I don't have experience, but maybe you know it's not it's not you know by the fundamental language design. Uh, maybe that is something that can be solved. You know uh, that you know if we don't have a lot of syntax changes, uh, then it's very easy. It's practical to you know kind of you know uh, maintain the backward compatibility. I think and I think that's that's one of the things that the Go team is doing,
1: right? Yeah, I think. Um... Uh, that, that's absolutely true. So, uh, uh, language design will probably, um, uh, improve the rolling out of new features, um, to, to not break existing things or just to be for like backward compatible with, uh, your previous releases. Mm-hmm. So, um, um, yeah, I think so. Uh,
0: in, in the Python community, I think uh, the next major version of Python will be backwards compatible with Python 3. Uh, and even in the latest release of Python 3.8, a couple of new features, like new grammar introductions in the language that have been there, like you know uh, positional-only arguments and then uh, the walrus operator, which was like you know there was a huge, huge controversy around that. Uh, they are as well like backwards compatible, as in it won't break anything because these are new additions so you know you if you want to use it you can use it Uh, but if you are not using it you can just you know write as you used to write um so nothing will break uh, eventually so i think i think that's one of the that's one of the ways that you know it's it's better because you know i think personally think that you know the python community or the python user base they are not ready for another you know two to three, you know, <laughs> you know what do you mean? Yeah. Uh, if you know what I mean, right? Like two to three is a, such a major event and it has been going on forever. Uh, I don't think we can afford another two to three event in the future, right? So I think maintaining backward compatibility is the only, you know, the, the only practical way to be. right? And yeah, uh, great. So uh, let's, let's come back to talking about, uh, so we have been talking about developer tools and, so tell me, what has been the most, uh, uh, in your experience, the most uh, you know, curious or uh, the, most, the most notable tool that you have seen uh, in the past, like say one or two years that has increased your personal productivity as a developer?
1: Um, well, I guess um, uh, uh, mostly it's been like tooling around um, auto-completion, um, mm-hmm. linting, okay um like finding errors with uh like some obscure errors that don't really uh have an easy uh like way to figure figure them out um so yeah mostly it's been all of these uh i think most of these are like vim plugins so um uh and the back end for these are like um uh like linters like ts server um uh like language server client for like vim uh, for for TypeScript and JavaScript, so um, I, I think we are, we'll we'll probably see a lot of more uh, interesting uh, products from the language server protocol uh, or one of its uh, um, derivatives. Right. Because having a a, a a way to communicate with your text editor about what's going wrong and what's going right, that's going to improve productivity a lot. I think. Right. Okay.
0: Okay i think i think yeah i think that's that's very uh, I, in a in a day to day perspective in a day to day manner when you write code i think better tooling around whatever editor that you are using let's say i, I use sublime uh, and i have been using sublime for you know quite some time and without a lot of plugins but there are some essential plugins that i use especially because i write a lot of html and css as well and uh, not something very very huge but these small, small things like you know auto completion uh, and you know auto generation of code when you, especially when you're writing HTML, that is something that is very nifty and that saves me a lot of time.
1: Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, there is there is uh, there is a lot of plugins for that. I think it's called Spark HTML or something, Zen Spark or something like that, uh, which which does like tab completion and then you get a template. which Yeah. Auto generation of those um, things. Uh,
0: very nifty. So I think. Yeah. I think in terms of you know. Uh, improving developer productivity using these sorts of tools, I think a lot of productivity can be improved by these small micro, you know, innovation in terms of workflows, rather than, you know, uh, rather than thinking about some huge innovation, I think a lot of things can be done with these micro innovations, micro, uh, you know, so as to speak, these, these micro improvements in the existing workflow, using our existing things you know as in using our existing editors
1: uh possible yeah definitely uh for example um uh go has something similar for like generating templates it's called go generate um uh, well it's it's for like um uh, automated code which like you don't want to repeat. So, um, it's it's kind of similar, but not in the same way as HTML uh, Zen coding. Right. Because uh, the code that you generate is not actually checked in. It's always compiled like on the fly. So, uh, similar features and similar uh, new features like that could probably be, you know, you know, not only boost productivity, but also increase the performance, uh, increase the throughput of your app, right. for example. Right.
0: Awesome. Yeah, totally agree. Um, so yeah, and uh, and then uh, okay. So and then for conclusion, you know, let's talk a little bit more about you know. So keeping in the spirit of the podcast itself, uh, what does good code mean to you, as in personally? How do you define what you think about good code?
1: Um, I think good code is about communicating. Like it's communicating two people at the same time. Well, not two people, but two uh, interfaces one is like good code has to be understandable to a human of like reasonably uh, intelligence. Uh, At the same time, it has to go through like the compiler to be compiled into an executable. So uh, it has to balance both these aspects, uh, like push both of these um, limitations to the core so that uh, none of these gets balanced out. Uh, And... uh, uh, it has to be like understandable without being too complicated. Uh, you have to be, you, there is some complexity that's unavoidable because of the complexity of your logic of your app. But uh, any extraneous or uh, unnecessary complexity uh, must be uh, avoided for the best, I think. So uh, it's just the balance of these right. two things, I think.
0: To, but, so uh, so to summarize, uh, uh, it's, the human aspect while writing code is more important uh, and then reasonably reasonably so when you write code reasonably good enough for the computer to execute but also good enough for other people to collaborate on on your code essentially essentially that's what and I think that's that's fair that's uh, that's fair because you know, as developers uh, most of our time is is spent in reading other people's code. Uh, and, uh, exactly. and you know, that's how we inherently collaborate so I think yeah the human aspect has to be has to be one of the important things that you know when you think about good code maybe readability maybe readability is more important you know you can say that you know so I was having this very interesting conversation with someone uh, last week um, that maybe the readability of code should take more priority over say, the performance of your code
1: right uh... Well, uh, it really depends on your use case. Like, um, uh, if you don't really need that much performance, uh, you, you could, like, not worry about, like, over-optimizing your code at that right. point, but you could still prioritize, like, readability of your code. Uh, it, it really depends on your use case. If you are, like, processing, like, a million requests per second or something where you, where performance is really, really important, uh you make sure that the performance is uh is being uh, generated by your code but uh when you're op- optimizing or um uh like implementing all the details about maybe you're like creating new data structures to handle your data better or imp- increase the throughput uh you you make sure that all that process gets documented and uh the readability is maintained for that right. code as well yep
0: yep that makes sense that makes sense um so i think yeah it's it's a great uh, great conversation uh, so and, and a great way to conclude uh, conclude the second episode of our podcast as well um thank you for listening listening to the podcast uh we were talking to javed uh, javed khan who works at handshake and we will see you in the next episode